Radio Mano Papachango. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm recording this intro on my phone, um, so if it sounds a little bit different from what you're used to, <clears throat> the audio quality is brought to you by Google Pixel. Uh, I'm sitting in a beautiful grove of trees a little bit north of Susanville, California which is in the north east corner of the state around Lassa National Park. Back here with uh, the van, uh, starting the Anthropology 2020 tour, as you've heard. Um, and before I get into some of the things I want to talk about, let me just tell you this episode is with a guy named Ben Horton, who is... Uh, photographer extraordinarily talented photographer tv host adventurer um you know he's the he's the guy lots of little boys dream of growing up to be uh including yours truly when i was a kid i had all these fantasies about uh you know growing up to be a forest ranger and um, then, as I got older, a photographer for National Geographic. Um, but as you probably know, I lack the ambition and uh, stamina and, uh, what would you say, athletic ability uh, or tolerance for discomfort. I, li I lack a lot of things that are necessary to that kind of life. Um, but uh, it's not... It's not for a lack of desire. It's uh, not for a lack of appreciation is probably a better word. Um, it's just amazing that uh, people can make a living doing things like traveling and taking pictures of what they see and writing about it. I mean, it's uh, I guess in some ways it's what I, I am doing, but uh, in a very different way. In any case, check out Ben Horton's uh, photography. As I say, I'm sitting... Uh, in a chair in a forest uh, in the shade talking on my phone so I don't have a laptop I can't give you all the you know websites and all that but I'll I'll uh, come back at the end of the episode when I'm sitting in a Starbucks parking lot and I will uh, <clears throat> give you those links and they're certainly on the web page for the podcast um, so I hope you enjoy this conversation with Ben now <clears throat> back to my current situation. Uh, those of you who have listened to this podcast for some time will not be under the impression that uh, I'm a particularly careful and intelligent person, but some people who may be listening for one of the first times will say, ah, oh, this guy's a New York Times bestselling author. He's written a couple of books. 
I gave a TED Talk and uh, was quoted in the New York Times or whatever, and you think that I'm a smart guy. Well, let me set you straight. A few days ago, I took one of these beautiful bikes um, that were provided to me by BMC, the Swiss bike company, fantastic bikes. If you're in the market for a bike uh, and you have some cash to burn, I highly recommend these electric assist mountain bikes. Uh, they're just fantastic. In fact, where I'm sitting right now is next to something called the Biz Martin Trail. Um, I guess I can I can give this up to you. I am near a little camping spot called Gomaz, G-O-M-A-U-Z, I think it's pronounced. If you look on a map and you see Susanville, it's just a little north. Um, the campground itself, there are some people there, but there's a spot nearby along this uh, little stream, very pretty big stream, really, uh, that's just extraordinary. We've been here for three nights, I think, four nights. Um, Simon Rex and uh, Leah might come and meet us up here at some point. I'm not sure. But anyway, it's beautiful. If you're looking for a place to camp in Northern California, uh, highly recommended beavers and river otters and uh, all kinds of creatures flying around. Anyway, uh, last week we are camping out in the National Forest not far from here and I decided to go for a ride on my BMC bicycle. And I rode down a logging road and then uh, I there was this big field and I wanted to sort of get to the other side of the field um, and so I took these roads and took a left and then took another left and then found uh, some ruins, some old houses, like uh, cabins and stuff that had fallen into disrepair. And um, then I set off across the field to get back to where we were camping. And I rode all the way across this field. And I'm talking about, when I say a field, it's like a mountain meadow with little streams running through it probably a mile across the, the field. And uh, I get to the other end of the field where my camp is supposedly set up, and nope, that's weird. So I decide to go back into the woods for some reason, and then I get on this other road, and I think I'm going toward where the camp must be, but then that road peters out, and then I go down this other smaller road thinking this is going to lead me across the stream so I can get back to the main road. All right, you see where this is going, don't you? It's about 5 p.m. and I am fucking lost. Totally. Almost totally lost. I have a vague sense of where, of how to get back to where I was. So I decide after... I get to the point where it's like, if I keep going forward, I'm going further into the unknown, meaning like I have no fucking clue. I'm losing the thread of how to get back. So I turn around and I go back and um, luckily find my way back to the, the road that petered out and get back to this field 
And I'm like, okay, I got to go back across the field to where the ruins are. And then I know how to get back on the roads from there. So I go across this field again, like a mile across it's thick grass and, and, uh, branches and things. Cause I guess it had been logged. So there's all kinds of like cracking and stuff. And I don't know if there are snakes in there and, I have to get off and slosh through the water. And anyway, I finally get back to the other side and there are no ruins. Where are the fucking ruins? So I start riding along the ridge, the edge of this field, looking for these ruins. And I see Scarlett Jovanson. So I was more lost than I even thought I was. I, I, I thought I had a sense of where I was, but it turns out I was totally wrong. So I don't know how this happened, but somehow I stumbled back upon the camp uh, in a place where I thought it definitely was not. That was last week. Now... And and I was at the point where I was seriously thinking, like, it's going to be fucking cold spending the night out here. Me and my bike and no water and no cell phone signal and no fucking clue where I am. Um, so that was last week. And now today, well, yesterday, uh, we went for a ride on this Biz Martin Trail, which, by the way, was a railroad track that has been converted into a biking trail through the woods. Beautiful. Just beautiful. So in the morning, we rode up one end because we're sort of in, in the middle of it somewhere. We rode in one direction for an hour or two and then turned around and came back and then hung out at the camp and then decided to explore the other direction after we hung out You know, in the more afternoon when it cooled down a little bit. So as I usually do, I locked up the van and um, just stashed the keys, you know, away from the van a little bit uh, under some pine needles. We came back and can't find the keys. No idea where the keys are. I think I remember putting them at the base of a tree and just dropping some pine needles over it, over them. But that could have been the first time when we went out. And I just have no recollection of what I did with the fucking keys. I remember at the time thinking, like, I don't need to make a big deal of remembering where these keys are because it's so easy. It's so, like, right here. Like, I'll remember. Easy. No problem. No keys. Looked around for a couple of hours yesterday. Uh, been looking around. It came out last night with a flashlight, thinking the flashlight would pick up the shine of the key. I'm talking like four keys and the electrical fob, you know, that uh, the push-button door locker thing. So it's not like one small key. There's silver keys. There are brass keys. There's a lot of fucking keys on there. And it's gone. The whole bunch of them. I don't know where they are. Now, before you think, uh, Chris is getting old, his brain's starting to go, which maybe, 
Um, but I have to admit that I have a lifelong habit of hiding things and then forgetting where I hid them. So there's that. Anyway, luckily there is an extra key so the van can still be started and I can drive somewhere and uh, get another key. But it is disturbing to say the least. All right. Well, another thing that's disturbing, which I guess I should address, uh, which is difficult uh, for me to talk about, honestly. Um, <clears throat> but I feel like I should address it because a lot of people have written to me and asked why I haven't talked about the Black Lives Matter movement and um, what's going on in the country right now with the response to historical and systemic abuse of black people and brown people and Chinese people and all sorts of people. Um, I had a dream uh, a few nights ago where I was sitting with, I th it was either Cornell West or someone who had that kind of energy. And I had recently watched a talk uh, that Cornell West did on, um, it was um, on the platform Big Think, and I highly recommend it to you. And the title is something like um, The Difference Between Justice and Vengeance, I think, um, by Cornell West. And it's he's giving a public talk. He's, he's on a stage. It's not the typical Big Think format. Uh, and it's on YouTube, so if you just Google it or search it on YouTube, you'll see it. And it's extraordinary. It's really, really well done. You know, he doesn't read from notes. He's just laying it out. And uh, it's something, this difference between justice and revenge is something I think about a lot. We see it playing out in all sorts of arenas, you know, in the Me Too, or, yeah, in the Me Too movement, you know, I've I've read interviews with women who have said, well, you know, okay, maybe Al Franken didn't deserve it, but there's going to be some collateral damage as we seek justice. And so, you know, okay, it's too bad that he got screwed, but a lot of women have been screwed over the years. So there's just going to be some of that kind of thing. Um, I understand that perspective, and I understand the perspective of, um, let's say, a lot of angry black people are rioting, and there's some whitey there, and next thing you know, the white guy's on the ground getting kicked by a bunch of people who don't know him or anything about him other than the fact that he's white. You know, we've seen videos of this happening. And... One part of you recoils from that and says, that's horrible. You know, that's that's not 
just, but there's another part that says, yeah, but that's been happening to black people forever. And so there's um, some kind of a movement toward balance in that. The thing is that I feel like we have this tendency to misunderstand and misuse the word justice. You know, when, when we read that someone was murdered and the victim's family is seeking justice, what that normally means is that the victim's family wants the murderer to be put to death. That's, in my understanding, that's not justice. That's revenge. That's, or another way to think of it is compensatory injustice. So this unjust act has been perpetrated. We're going to respond to that with an equally unjust act, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, as the Old Testament has it. And I understand that, and I'm not saying that I'm above that. I'm not saying that if someone hurt somebody very close to me that I wouldn't want to hurt that person. I would. And so there's some sort of a... like a natural seeking of balance through revenge. Um, The problem is that we know it doesn't work on a state level. And the American justice system is set up along these terms. It's set up in a compensatory... uh, unjust philosophy. It's not set up to create justice. It's set up to punish injustice. And those are two different things. So we have a prison system that tortures people and then releases them and expects them never to commit a crime again against society, against the very society that tortured them. That doesn't create justice. That perpetuates injustice. It perpetuates the cycles of violence and oppression and despair. I was talking with a friend uh, recently who's... um, I guess he studied law and worked as a lawyer for a while, and then he became a river rafting guide. Eric in Salida, if you're listening, what's up? Eric um, said something very interesting to me, which was that, in his opinion, the death penalty should only be applied to white-collar criminals because the underlying thinking is that death penalty will uh, deter 
crime by scaring people who are considering committing uh, the crime. And yet we know that the people who commit crimes that incur the death penalty, murder and, uh, you know, acts of, of crazed vengeance and anger and or what they call acts of passion, those people aren't thinking about effects. They're not thinking about what's going to happen to them down the road. They're in the moment. They're totally in the moment. I'm not talking about assassins. I'm talking about, you know, your basic run of the mill. You fucked my wife. Now I'm going to shoot you kind of murder. Uh, those people are not deterred at all. The research is very strong on that. The person who would be deterred is the guy working at the bank who figures out how he can steal lots of money without anyone figuring it out, supposedly. Or the hedge fund manager who sells a, retire, a, a mutual fund with hundreds of thousands of old people's retirement money in it. He, sell, he finds a way to sell them worthless stock, which is largely what caused the crash in 2008. He knows what he's doing. He's thought it through. He went to Princeton. He's very smart. He knows exactly what he's doing. And he's the kind of person who, if there were a death penalty, if there were any fucking penalty, to be honest, but if certainly if there were a death penalty for stealing millions of dollars from old people's retirement accounts, then he would think about that. He would think about what he has to lose. But the people that we apply these draconian penalties to are precisely the people who don't think about those crimes before they commit them. So I think Eric's argument is quite interesting and quite indicative on how the incentives are all backwards in our justice system. Anyway, in my dream, Cornell West said to me, hey, man, why aren't you talking publicly about what's happening right now? Aren't you angry? And in my dream, I started talking. And I started letting the anger flow. And next thing you know, I was just totally broken down and crying. And I was trying to say, I've been angry since I learned to read. Which is true. I try to live a life that's focused as much as possible on simple happiness and friendships and pleasure and nature and kindness and all the positive things. But I'd be lying if I didn't say that that was a very intentional decision that took me decades to get to. And 
as I remember my teens and 20s, I was fucking enraged. And I still am. And so it's hard for me to talk about these things because I feel like everyone's jumping on the bandwagon. Everyone's got their Black Lives Matter signs in the window. And that's good. But I've been enraged by systemic oppression, by slavery, whether you call it slavery or you call it minimum wage or you call it fraudulent student loans or you call it shutting down the factories because it's cheaper to make this shit in China where they dump the fucking pollutants right into the into the rivers or into the air and you don't have to deal with those pesky environmental regulations or you don't have to deal with those pesky unions who want some kind of benefits want some kind of retirement security want some kind of medical care no no we don't want to deal with that so we're just going to move all this to Vietnam or China or Mexico where, yeah, they don't pay so much attention to these things. As many of you know, my first and maybe eternal passion was for Native American culture. And I, uh, one of the first books I read was Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee. I must have been 11 when the first time I read that. Now, if you want to read a really good book that gives you a sense of different Native American cultures and uh, what they were like and, and what their last days were like as intact cultures, there's no better book that I know of. The author is D. Brown. And, but each chapter is about the destruction of the Seminoles or the Iroquois or the Cheyenne or the Apaches or the Chief Joseph and the Nez Perce. Or, it's heartbreaking. Each chapter breaks your heart in a new way in a new part of your heart and the lies, the broken treaties, the deceptions, the massacres, the, the sand Creek massacre. Look that up. I was an 11 year old boy who was so ashamed that this was my culture and I still am so the reason I don't talk about these things maybe as much as some people would like is that uh, I guess it's too hard and I 
learned to have that anger exist in a certain place and not let it out. And sometimes when I let out a little bit, it feels like I'm tearing off a scab and the bleeding might never stop. So I try to talk about things structurally, eternal things, and uh, I try not to get too caught up in the passions of the day because these things come and go and, you know, of course I'm down with Black Lives Matter, of course. And I think my books have uh, reflected that concern. So I, I don't feel like I need to necessarily, you know, turn my Instagram feed over to it in order to signal my virtue to the other, you know, scolds. It's strange. It's strange how many white people have written to me and said, I haven't seen a Black Lives Matter thing on your Instagram. What's wrong with you? Strange. All right. That's it. That's my rant from the forest. Uh, I will upload this as soon as I get to somewhere with uh, Wi-Fi in the next day or two. Uh, sorry for the long rant. This one's longer than usual, but I just felt like I had to address that and the dream sort of gave me a answer to question that I was having as to, cause I didn't really know why I wasn't talking about it. Um, why I felt so hesitant to, to get into it. You know, it's, it's like a band's coming through town. Everyone's talking about the band and like, I've been listening to this band since I was a kid. Like, uh, it's, it's not a passing fad for me and I hope it's not a passing fad for American culture but I fear that it is because I've seen it come and go before all right I don't know what song I'm going to play right now but it's a good one and I'll come on at the end in that parking lot and tell you what song I picked it'll have something to do with travel and adventure and something related to Ben Horton's life, hopefully. Hope you enjoy this episode, and I hope things are going okay for you wherever you are.
Thanks for doing this, man. This it's I've been wanting to get you on the podcast since I met you. I don't know when that was. That was that was a different world. That yeah, was it was like B- two years ago. <laughs> BC yeah, before, before coronavirus. Corona. <laughs> so you are um, you're living the life that I uh, sort of fantasized about when I was a young kind of traveler. Um, I was very into Galen Rowell. Do you know his? Oh work? yeah. Yeah, his work's amazing. Yeah, like, you know, when I first started traveling, I quit. A, I, I had this weird job in New York. I was working for a millionaire, uh, which I was totally unqualified to be doing. I had no business education or anything, but this guy just hired me. And um, I was making all this money, and but I was not backpacking around the world, which is what I wanted to be doing. Yeah. So when I quit the job... This guy went out and he bought me the best camera in the world at that time. I mean, not a Zeiss or anything, but it was a Nikon right. F3 high eye point. Yeah. You know, and I uh, I didn't really n- know much about photography, but I wanted to learn how to use that camera. Yeah. And so I got into it. And, you know, my dream was to someday be a photographer for national geographic that was just like the top of the, the pinnacle mountain. yeah the pinnacle and so you're there uh, yeah congratulations yeah um i mean it's been a long road and 
sometimes it's it's not the best thing, you know? Um, and other times it's like, wow, how did I get this job? How did I end up out in the middle of a jungle alone <laughs> taking pictures? <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I imagine when it's good, there's nothing better. But as you say, well, I after my first trip to Asia, I went back to New York. The same guy hired me for a different job. I didn't want to be in New York. Uh, and one of the things that I did to sort of keep my sanity was National Geographic had this series, uh, uh, like a training uh, series, where they had photogra- staff photographers come in and give a lecture. Once, right. It was like once a week for 10 weeks or something. Yeah. And I remember, I don't remember who it was, um, but one of the guys, after the, the lecture, uh, we went out for drinks. And this was like 1989, maybe, somewhere around there. And after a few drinks, he said, it was like me and one other dude. And he's like, listen, guys, you know, this sounds great, but yeah. I'm 45 years old. I spend 300 days a year on the road. My wife doesn't know what I look like anymore. Um, you know, I'm at the top of the world of travel adventure photography, and I'm making 70 grand a year, yeah. which, you know, was good money in 1989. But, you know, he's like, I'm at the top. And also digital photography is coming, and the whole industry is going to change in ways we can't imagine, like I would recommend you think of something else to do. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I always tell people National Geographic, it's a great goal, but it's not the end all be all because uh, I mean, for me, I have to use that to get myself other work. Um, typically, when you get a story for National Geographic, you're not really making much of a profit. Um, but what you do get is recognition. Um, right. You know, I've only gotten a couple of small assignments from the magazine, and it's been a lot of other projects for other divisions with National Geographic. Um, A lot of them I come up with on my own, so it's technically like a a grant program, and I'm an explorer for National Geographic. And nine times out of ten, I end up putting money into it more than I'm making out of it. Um, Right. But where it's really finally paid off is now I have a TV show on National Geographic that features me traveling around China taking photos, which now that's the dream job, right? (laughs) Right. Um, Have a show about being a photographer. (laughs) It pays much better. You know, the best part about it is I have producers picking the most beautiful, incredible places in the world for me to go to and photograph. Um, I don't have to do a lot of the legwork which is a fun part of the job, finding something new. But when you have a whole team working on it, you can end up in amazing places. Yeah. Yeah. So the show's Extreme China, right? That's what you're talking about. Is it the second season's about to come out or is it already out? Well, um, we filmed the first episode of the second season and I was a week from heading to a place called Zhangshaiji and coronavirus hit. So I am on hold until the end of this. Um, As soon as it's over, hopefully I'll be getting back out there to film the final two episodes. But yeah, we were were already talking about what we were going to do for season three. And um, now everything's kind of up in the air. 
So the show is Extreme China. It's not Extreme China this season, Extreme Siberia next season. This is completely Extreme China. Um, You know, most people wouldn't know that pretty much everything you see on TV is paid for by somebody besides the channel. Um, And China pays for a lot of content on National Geographic. Right. As a way to sort of promote their image internationally. Yeah. You know, at first I thought tourism, but then I realized they're sending me to some of the harshest environments that they have. So I don't think it's tourism. What do you think their angle is? Um, Maybe just trying to show that China has everything that the U.S. has or everything that the rest of the world has. Um, You know, the first place I went to in China, it felt like I was in a park 10 times the size of Yosemite with 10 times as much granite, bigger climbing walls, and everything started at about 13,000 feet. So Hmm. high elevation, huge granite walls, best climbing in the world, probably, if you have the lungs to get yourself there. Uh, And I'd never heard of it, you know? Right. Here, Yosemite National Park. Yeah. Very few people there had even heard of it. Um, and, you know, the last episode, I, I rode a motorcycle across part of the Gobi Desert, and it was just sand dunes as far as you could see. And, I mean, I've never felt like I was so out in the middle of nowhere. You know, I've I've been in the middle of nowhere yeah. a lot in my life, but this there's just nothing. <laughs> <laughs> You're not going to walk across yeah. and survive, you know? Yeah. Is that, do you think that's the most remote spot you've ever been in? No. Um, The most remote spot I've ever been in was uh, dog sledding across the Arctic. And, Mm. you know, we were out there for two months, um, 1,400 miles of of cross-country skiing alongside a dog sled. And, you know, we took a plane most of the way in and then traveled. So... It was so remote that I remember about a week and a half or two weeks in looking up and seeing a a plane flying overhead and realizing it was the first sign of humans that I'd seen since I got there. Hmm. How many people were in your party? Uh, There were six other people. So we had Will Steger, who's an Arctic legend, um, and then six younger people. So two people per sled and one person picking the path ahead. What was the purpose of the trip? Um, So I've always kind of found this a a little bit silly in a sense of, you know, the older generation bringing the newer generation in. Um, It was called the heirs to the Arctic. Um, But along the path, what we did was, you know, I was there as a photographer uh, documenting the effects of global warming from a firsthand perspective. And then once I got back home and everybody got back home, we all went around and gave a series of lectures. Um, You know, we spoke for embassies and I spoke at colleges and, you know, to National Geographic. Um, That's where I think the real value came out of the trip. Mm, Right. And the public outreach and education. Yeah. Right. Um, Yeah, that's 14 days. Well, 14 days was when you saw the airplane. Yeah. And you said it was two months in total. Two months in total. I was there for a month-long training trip in Baffin Island, Um, flew home, had a little bit of a break, and then flew back out and and did the final leg of the trip. Wow. 
that that kind of experience must, you know, in addition to just enriching your own experience, when you read accounts of early Arctic explorers, it mm-hmm. must like you see that in so much more detail than the normal reader would. Yeah. Do you, are you into that kind of thing? F- oh, absolutely. Um, and to be able to really feel the isolation that the characters are going through. Um, yeah. You know, on, on training days, I would go cross-country ski 30 or 40 miles across these mountain ranges that nobody's probably been in for hundreds of years. It was probably the Inuit who were there before us. And realizing that you're out there completely yeah. by yourself. And, you know, on the way back, seeing that there's polar bear tracks or uh, wolf tracks following alongside your ski tracks on the way up. That's the interesting part. <laughs> yeah, you're that, being that's watched. That's one thing I've, I've been thinking about that a lot recently because I feel like a, a lot of people have never truly been on their own. Everybody has this mm. support system that they've relied on their entire life. And right now... Um, with the coronavirus happening and every having to be in isolation, um, especially people in the outdoor world, people who are climbers or paragliders or surfers, um, they don't know how to pull it back and, and just rely on themselves. And Hmm. I'm seeing a lot of that in my friends right now. That's interesting because the, you know, you're talking about people that uh, the general public would probably see as being very hardy and individualistic. And you're actually saying they have a kind of vulnerability because of the community aspect of, of what they do and their identity being associated yeah. with that activity. Right, exactly. So like, for instance, you know, I've been climbing for over 20 years. I've been paragliding for almost two. So I'm a much newer paraglider. And I really don't want to go out alone and launch myself off of a mountain. However, right now I'd be more than comfortable going out and going climbing somewhere because I I know my boundaries. I know my limitations. Um, But paragliding, especially it's a, it is a solo sport, but it's also, um, it relies a lot on a crew. You know, you've got the shuttle to get the car to the top or get yourself to the top. If you're not hiking up, you've got usually a group of people deciding on whether the weather conditions are safe to fly in. Um, and one of the things that we're hearing a lot about is, you know, don't add any pressure to the medical industry right now, um, right. to healthcare workers. And mm. what I'm seeing is either people aren't flying at all, which is great, or people are flying just like they used to and going a hundred percent. And I personally feel like there's a safe middle ground somewhere. You know, you you don't have to push your limits, um, but you don't have to stop either. Well, with paragliding, what do you mean by push your limits? Because, I mean, you're never supposed to fly when conditions aren't ideal, right? Right. I but mean, you're not flying close to the cliff face. You know, they're, I, I did. I've done 10 flights. Yeah? I did. <laughs> yeah. I, I, uh, I was in Goa, India. 15 years ago and there was a dude on this beach where I was staying named Uwe, this German guy. And he had two parachutes and he was like, Hey, for a hundred bucks, I'll teach you how to do it. And 10 flights. And I was like, damn, yeah. hundred bucks. So we had to climb up the mountain or the hill really. Um, and, uh, yeah, man, my, I, I, I still have never flown tandem. I've yeah. only flown by myself. Yeah, same here. That's uh, 
oh That's really i was taught as well yeah <laughs> yeah yeah the first flight was kind of kind of hairy dude because it was me and this other dude this huge scottish guys like 280 pounds probably and uh we did the first day on the beach you know just dropping you know learning how to drop the chutes so you didn't get dragged across the yep. beach when you landed and uh a little theory and i remember reading like he, he had these um photocopy from some training manual or something and I remember reading this stuff about like clouds that would suck you up into the oh, cloud yeah. <laughs> and flash freeze your body and you don't know what's up and down and you had to like collapse the chute and just fall yeah. and like all this stuff. And I'm thinking like, fuck that. I'm not doing this unless conditions are 100% perfect, right? Yeah. Anyway, yeah. so the next day we climb up this hill. I, I don't know how high, maybe 500 meters or something. And... Uve's like, okay, now, you know, when there's like a not nice breeze coming in off the ocean, right? So you just like run, run, run. I'll, fl you know, hold your chute, make sure it inflates. And you go out like over the ocean. And, and we had these earphones, you know, and he yep. had a radio. And he said, I'm going to talk you, tell you where to turn. And then you come in and there's this little valley and come in over this lake and then land on the beach. And uh, the Scottish guy goes first. Thank God. And uh, he goes out and he gets like out over. There's this sort of these little island out there. And Uwe tells him to turn left and he banks in and lands perfectly. Everything's great. And then it's my turn. Yeah. And by now it's like 11, maybe 1130. It's getting hot. And yeah. I go and I'm floating out. My first flight ever. I'm floating out over the Indian Ocean. And I like get in the harness and I got the two things in my hands, you know, and I'm just cruising and the wind in my hair and it's like this is fucking amazing and i'm just going straight out into the indian ocean and i'm i start thinking like shouldn't i be turning pretty soon <laughs> i'm like i'm way past those rocks where the scottish guy turned and then i hear in the distance i hear this screaming and i turn and look and uve is jumping up and down on this mountain <laughs> and what had happened was my ear phone fell out uh-huh so he was telling me like okay chris turn chris Anytime turn now. turn and i'm just cruising out over the ocean yeah yeah and did you so land that on the was beach? a real i i made it back to the beach yeah Good. it was uh, i don't know if you know this but landing in the ocean with a paraglider is death no not good the wing turns into a sea anchor and just sucks you under yeah yeah <laughs> um yeah, that did occur to me as I was hoping I'd make it back to the beach. <laughs> but, but the funny thing was, man, I came down and I guess, you know, there's like, um, I don't know, like almost an instinctive um, knowledge because I could see the my rate of decline. Yeah. And so, like, you can just sort of tell, like, okay, with this rate of decline, I'm going to get that far before I hit the ground, right? Yeah. So you sort of – I could – work it out but just as i was coming down to the beach to land this you know typical indian kind of rabid looking cur dog came <laughs> and i was like gonna land right in the jaws of this dog <laughs> anyway that was my first flight and i i did yeah, nine more and i'm like yeah i don't know if i'll ever do this again but this was good when was this uh 2000 
three, four. Oh, you got to do it again. The equipment has gotten so much better, so much safer. The instructions gotten a lot better than that. <laughs> better than um, Uve for a hundred, oh, yeah. but more expensive too, more right? Expensive too, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess I don't know how the licensing works. But he told me that with the thing he gave me, he gave me this little booklet that recorded mm-hmm. the flights. Yeah. And apparently, like, I'm a licensed paraglider. I don't know if that's true. You're probably at what the call the place we would call licensed to learn is, right? Like, <laughs> Learner's like, permit. Yeah, pretty much. So you get a – now it's a P1, a P2, all the way up to P5. And hmm. P1 is you can take off and you can land, but you can't fly without an instructor. P2 is you can fly without an instructor, but only at certain sites, and you should have people with you who are more experienced. I'm a P3, which means I'm pretty much free to go do what I want, but not to get too much of a big head about me because I can still get my butt kicked. (laughs) Right. Do you know Jeff Shapiro? I have definitely heard the name. Yeah, he's... um... I had him on the podcast a few months ago. Well, last summer, actually. He he lives in uh, Montana. I saw him up there. He's a big uh, flyer. He's done the wingsuit thing for a uh, long time. Yeah. And he just did a trip. I uh, I forget who sponsored it. I don't think it was National Geographic, but he and another dude were paragliding in the Brooks Range in Alaska. With Gavin McClurg. And, okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah probably. Yeah. I, I think that was – and the film was called 500 Miles to Nowhere. Right. And they yeah. stopped and camped and then got back up and yeah. flew. Yeah. 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 Very cool. Those yeah. two are legends. I mean, Gavin especially. And he's got a great podcast. I don't know if you've ever heard his. It's it's no. uh it's cloud based mayhem. It's it's very paragliding oriented, but mm. um yeah, it's if you're at all interested in the sport, go listen to that. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed the experience. I, you know, my thing is I like doing things that are really exciting, but uh, at minimal risk. I'm the I don't same like way. Getting hurt. See, I'm the same yeah. way. I have been hurt so many times in my life. I have broken everything. I've, my shoulders are totally rebuilt. I've fractured my pelvis, my back. Um, I used to be a professional snowboarder and a professional whitewater kayaker, and mm. you know, at a certain point, I realized that I'm mortal. I don't know <laughs> that, that getting hurt wasn't as much fun. And with a sport like paragliding, you're typically either okay or you're dead, right? There's not a lot of in between. Right. Um, yeah. And so with paragliding, I've decided to take it a lot slower than I took other sports. And the fact that it can be really scary helps me take it a lot slower. Um, I try to not take nearly as many risks you know that mentality where you like if you're going to go jump off a cliff somewhere into water or or snowboarding or skiing you you can get this mentality of like ah fuck it i'm going for it you know um that that doesn't really work with paragliding (laughs) because like you said you know you don't fly when the weather's bad you don't fly close to the cliff face but you do right i mean the there's boundaries there and the better you get, the worse the conditions would be for a beginner to fly in. But you being more experienced might be able to go up to 15,000 feet and fly 200 miles, Mm. you know, in those strong conditions that are quote unquote too strong. So there's a balance there. Um, 
I'm still just trying to really get to know myself and how I react when things do go wrong. So I'm keeping So what has gone wrong for you uh, while paragliding? I mean, I've had collapses. I've had my wing collapse. I've had it stall in the air. Um, you know, I've done what's called an SIV course, which is where you you go over a lake with a guy on a radio and you make everything go wrong that you can possibly think can go wrong. You stall your wing. You learn how to reopen it while you're falling out of the sky. Um, you put yourself into auto rotations and spirals and spins mm. and all these different things that can happen. And then you learn how to recover for, from them. I've done two of those. But in the wild, as we say, I've only had one real stall. And the muscle memory kicked in and I handled it within two seconds and it was great. Flew away. Um, but it just goes to show like stuff can stuff can really sneak up on you when you're not expecting it. Um, yeah. The air is moving around that you can't see what's happening. But I liken it to big wave surfing where you can't see the wave coming. It's that kind of energy that you feel. Hmm. Right. So it's like a, another sense that you're picking up what's happening. Yeah. And there is kind of a sixth sense to it that nobody can quite put their finger on, but you can feel when that thermal's on its way. Right. I, I thought about that in my own experience, as I said, where um, I, you know, I, I kind of, I was tempted to panic, of course, because when I realized I had gone too far and you know, I might not get back and I knew because he had said, like, if you land in the ocean, you get out of your harness in three seconds or you're drowning, you know, yeah. like mm -hmm. quick release, this and that. Um, but and also you owe me for a parachute. Yeah. <laughs> if you do <laughs> survive. <laughs> exactly. Uh, neither one of those outcomes were acceptable to me. But yeah. But I did think, like, why, evolutionarily speaking, why do I have this sense for, you know, descent and, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Like, why would that be built into my brain? Yeah. If you're a bird or a flying squirrel or something, then you would know that. But I don't really understand why a human just has that, you know, do you th function Do you think it's just in. other functions that happen to work for this as well? I mean, could be. Yeah. That's known as an exaptation. Yeah. I've always found uh, it amazing that I can drive a car and my brain can predict where every other car is and where it's going mm -hmm. and when it'll be there. You know, a computer couldn't do it as well. Or just to be yeah. able to throw a ball at somebody and have it hit them. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, those right. kinds of calculations, I it blows me away that our brains can do that. Yeah, yeah, it's true. I mean, you see, like, you know, baseball pitcher or something, like, geez, like, what's yeah. going on there? The CPU load is really high on that stuff. Yeah. So what, did you grow up in Santa Cruz? No. Um, I lived in Santa Cruz for about a year. Uh, oh, okay. I actually grew up in Bermuda and oh. uh, about half of my childhood. At nine years old, we moved to Colorado. So I went from living on a small tropical island to in the mountains of Colorado. And I, I got to very a very binary youth in that sense. I got to explore different kinds of environments and sports and um, learn two very different ways of living. And what, what was it that had you in Bermuda and then Colorado? Is it your parents' work or family life? Yeah, so my parents were missionaries um, and they were in Brazil until they got pregnant with my brother. And once they were pregnant with him, they couldn't really be missionaries anymore. So they moved to Bermuda where there were a lot of Portuguese speaking people. Um, and so 
we were in a cult there instead. <laughs> were they Christian? Yeah, it was, it was. They were Jehovah's Witnesses, which oh, okay. they would say is Christian. Other people would say isn't. I I yeah. left that a long time ago. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, so my parents couldn't legally work in Bermuda, um, so they were there just as missionaries, and we would go out in the boat, spearfish for dinner, catch lobster to pay bills with. Um, it was a it was a unique way of living as a child. I I miss it. I love that surviving off of the land lifestyle. You know, it's mm-hmm. a whole lot simpler than working a nine to five job and paying all these things. And it just it makes so much more sense to me to keep yourself alive. Yeah, yeah, I, I understand that. Um, your your brother's younger than you then. He's older. He's older. Yeah. Oh, okay. So yeah. that I see. They left, he, and yeah. then you were born in Bermuda. Yep. Mm-hmm. Oh, I see. Okay. And did, your parents are both Americans, but they wanted to be somewhere where people were speaking Portuguese, so they could they were proselytize sent, in Portuguese. Yeah. They were sent by the organization to Brazil, um, and then they they had to learn Portuguese in the process. Oh, I see. Okay. You speak Portuguese. Did I lose you? <laughs> I'm still here. Do you see me? Not anymore. I spoke oh. it until I was... I was <laughs> yeah, I see you now. Um, I spoke it till I was about nine. And then once we moved to the U.S., it all changed over into Spanish. Mm. So I speak some Spanish now. I'm, I'm not fluent, but I can travel alone through a Spanish-speaking country, no problem. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you look kind of Portuguese. <laughs> or... Or Brazilian. That's a compliment, by yeah, the way. Yeah, I can see that. I, yeah, I, I've, I definitely have one of those faces that I get mistaken for a local in a lot of the places I travel. That's a good thing to have as a traveler. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So what got yeah, you makes, into... Makes it easier. I mean, it sounds like you... So what, what was that? Oh, no, you, go ahead. Go ahead. Right. I, I was it sounds saying, like it, you... It makes travel a lot easier. Yeah, for sure. Although not if you're a woman. I I uh, right. have traveled a lot with um, women with brown skin and dark hair who mm-hmm. get mistaken for locals. And that can be a real problem because, mm. you know, the sexy, dark-skinned woman with the dorky yeah. white dude is generally a <laughs> prostitute. So in right. Thailand, it's not a problem. But in, in Morocco, it's mm-hmm. definitely an issue, you know. Oh wow! Uh, yeah, I'd never even considered that. Oh uh, yeah, I've I've experienced that a lot. <laughs> um, yeah, I was actually uh, in India with an Indian woman. That's a problem. That's, oh wow! That was like a daily, you know, life or death kind of situation. Um, but uh, what is it that got you? It sounds like like right out of high school you were into snowboarding and uh, kayaking and you know these sort of high risk high adrenaline pursuits. Mm-hmm. What was it? Was it just like you were in Colorado? So what the hell? That's what guys well, do. Or I I grew up with an older brother who is much more outgoing in the adventure world. You know, he was always the one who was braver than me. He's always been the one to do 
anything first, you know, mm. I've always been super cautious. I would actually say I deal with more fear than most people. And I think that these activities are a way for me to add some control to my myself, you know, to be able to force myself to sit back, look from an outside perspective, think about things mathematically and logically, and then make a decision as to whether or not I'm capable. Um, you know, I, I feel like I have this extra tank of energy that if I don't use it in a sport that can bring about that fear feeling, um, then that energy just turns into anxiety and frustration and general grumpiness. Um, if I don't get to go out and do something every week that, that burns off that extra tank of energy, I'm not the most fun person to be around. Um, mm. and I don't know what it is. I think, you know, like I, I've, I've said this to a bunch of different people, but I really do feel like I deal with more fear than most people. You know, my girlfriend learned to paraglide with me at the same time. And even now, I mean, I fly 10 times as much as she does, but even now she always seems to have less fear around flying. When we show up at a site, I'm, I'm thinking through everything and looking at the weather and looking at the lapse rate of the air and all these different things and really trying to make a deep decision as to whether or not it's safe. Um, and she has the more, you know, I am one with the elements attitude towards it. And I think that there's a safe middle ground somewhere in there, but um, yeah, it's, I, I don't know why I have that extra fear. Do you think, uh, I mean, I, I, I guess that approach predates your relationship with her, mm -hmm. but when I imagine being in your position, learning to fly with my girlfriend, I would be hyper vigilant because I'd be so afraid of her getting hurt. Yes, which then absolutely. would allow her to relax. Absolutely. I mean, that's a huge part of it. And even predating her, even going back to just me and my family, you know, I, I didn't like when my parents came to my snowboarding competitions because I didn't want them to see me get hurt. I didn't um, really love climbing with my brother because to me, the worst thing in the world would be for one of us to get injured and have to have the other one care for them and you know if one of us were to die um i think that it's a lot easier to do these kinds of activities with somebody that you don't care as much about um mm. you know you still care you don't want them to get hurt but you don't have that connection that really amplifies everything um so yeah you're absolutely right it's it can be ter it can be absolutely terrifying for me to see my girlfriend launch into conditions that I think are a little sketchy. <laughs> Do you think she'd be more vigilant if you weren't part of the picture? You Probably. know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. So what do you think about people who, um, uh, well, I'm, I'm thinking of, um, Anya Katz has a podcast called The Millennial's Guide to Saving the World, and she's a good friend of mine. She just did a podcast recently with, I forget the name of the organization, but they um, it's an organization of mountain climbers and other, you know, high risk kind of athletes and the people who are close to them. Mm-hmm. And uh, how they deal with risk and death and loss and grieving and all this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. how, how do you feel, you know, when people say, 
why would you do this? Like, why would you engage in these high-risk activities when you know that if something happens to you, it's going to hurt the people around you, whether they're with you at the moment or not? Um, because at a certain point, your life is your own, right? I think... I think it took me a while actually to see it from the other side where my life is not entirely my own, that my life is also my mom's and my brother's and my girlfriend's and, um, you know, the people who love me and rely on me. Um, but I think that I don't want to get to my deathbed and look back and say, wow, you know, I'm really glad I played it safe all those years. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, that was a whole lot better than cave diving or paragliding or swimming with sharks or whatever it is that that I got to experience. Um, I think a lot of people take those risks in other ways, gambling or just, you know, with their friendships and relationships. Um, Mm. I don't have to do that stuff because I burn that energy off. Yeah. What do you think, uh, you know, the role of fear in what you were saying, I thought was interesting. I was speaking with someone recently and he said, um, he said that he had learned recently that courage is not the absence of fear. It's, Mm -hmm. it's admitting to the fear and proceeding anyway. Right. I thought that was an interesting insight that so many, especially young guys, are pretending they're not afraid of anything and they're doing these crazy things to demonstrate their lack of fear. I have lack of fear. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Because they don't get it. I've had over 30 friends die in my life. I'm only 37 years old and I've had more friends die than I think most people have had in, you know, later years of life. Um, and they've been professional athletes and people that are used to pushing the limits. One interesting thing is that a lot of them didn't die doing the thing that they're professional at. Mm. Right? They died driving or, you know, taking that attitude into other parts of their lives. Um, and, you know, paragliding, I've already known four people that have died in the last two years that I've been doing it. You know, but every one of them was doing something that was beyond limitations or completely stupid. Um, mm. You know, a guy took off into clouds so he couldn't see anything and then flew into power lines. Like, okay, I, <laughs> I don't think it's the sport that's dangerous in that sense. I think the decision was, was the dangerous thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's a guy, uh, Chris Senecroci did a great youtube video on dealing with death in our community um and and how to approach it and how it tends to happen at certain seasons it's the spring when you haven't been flying a lot over the winter Mm. and all of a sudden the conditions in the spring there that's when it's the most volatile um and so people go out and we end up having a lot of injuries in the springtime Um, yeah i think i've become a little bit callous to it because i've I've had so many friends pass away. Um, you know, it doesn't affect me like it affects other people in the community. But there is always that that attitude of like, well, they were doing what they love. But I also think that we have to add to that and say, but were they taking a ridiculous risk? Were they going beyond their abilities? Or was it just a freak 
accident. And I think the more you backtrack and look at the cascade of events that led to whatever the accident was, um, it usually goes back to human error at some point and a bad decision. Mm. Um, one thing that I've been getting into over the last year is cave diving. And originally I had no interest in cave diving, but they want me to go explore a cave in China for the TV show. So I, I agreed to learn. And I went into it with this attitude of like, oh, this is stupid. Like so many people die. This is so crazy. And then I learned that the statistics are actually like 90 some percent of the people who die aren't trained cave divers. They're open water divers who look mm. into a cave and say, oh, let's just swim in until, you know, see what's in there and then turn around and swim back towards the light. But they don't know the risks involved. Now, when it yeah. comes to professional cave divers and people who are trained, the, the only thing that ends up really killing you is a navigation error. You know, making a decision not to lay the line in the correct place or saying, oh, we can get by with it this time. Um, but if you follow all the rules like, like you should, you're pretty safe. Um, and I kind of wish that other sports had a little bit more of that mentality of like these, you know, if I can fly at a hundred percent, I'm typically going to fly at 50% so that if it's 50% worse than I thought it was going to be, I'm still within my limits. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that yeah. kind of thinking. Yeah. I, I took, um, expert motorcycle course years ago. Um, cause I was laid up with, with hepatitis that I got in Guatemala. I got stung by a scorpion on a temple in Tikal. I don't know. If, have you been yeah. there? Uh, I, I haven't been there, but I know of it. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that's a long story. A but, scorpion um, gave you hepatitis? No, no. The doctor who was treating me gave me hepatitis because oh, okay. he had me take a pill and a bucket water out of a bucket he had sitting on the table. It was not a not a good you know like cascading series of events yeah for sure but um anyway i took this motorcycle uh expert course and one of the things i learned in that was something like 90 percent of all motorcycle accidents happen in the first three months of owning owning a mm -hmm. motorcycle so yeah you know it's exactly what you're saying it's this overconfidence lack right. of uh humility you know so, like so with paragliding it's a little bit different it's um it's not when you first learn we call it the intermediate syndrome mm. it's when you know enough to go out and fly in bigger conditions but right. you think you're a lot better than you are yeah. yeah yeah so when you look back on your own injuries right you've said mm -hmm. you've had lots of them uh how many of them were freak accidents versus uh, overestimation of your abilities? Um, a lot of them were actually wear and tear, just like my shoulders oh. getting worn down over time. Um, uh. But, man, you know, looking back on it, I think there's a certain feeling that I can remember having before a lot of them, which is that I can handle whatever comes at me. Like, oh, I'm just going to – I usually spin this way off this jump. I'm going to see what happens when I spin this way. You know, um, or making decisions too on the fly and, and not really focusing in. Um, so, yeah, I think it's an overconfidence. I think it's it's overestimating my ability to handle whatever comes at me.
But isn't that such a great feeling? That feeling yeah, when of, it I works. can take whatever comes. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's. I've tried to describe this in a lot of different ways in the past, and I might not do the best job at it now, but it's like when you're going, when you're skiing or snowboarding down a hill and you're going so fast, there's no way you could stop if something happened, but you know you're, you have the skill level to avoid whatever it is that happens. Um, it's that, it's just like this uh, flow state. I mean, you don't need to stop. You don't need to be able to escape because you can handle it. I wonder if that relates to the feeling you described earlier, living in Bermuda. Um, you don't mm -hmm. need money because you know where to find food. You know mm -hmm. how to spear fish. You know, it's, yeah. I mean, to me, of course, it relates back to this hunter-gatherer uh, mm -hmm. existence that all humans had for 99% <laughs> of our time on the planet, right? Where yeah. I know where the food is. I know how to catch it. I know how to build a shelter. I know, you know, how to make a snare. I know how to be warm at night. I know how to build a fire. Like, you got it all in your head. You don't need to worry about it. And the interesting thing about it, too, is I don't need these sports when I'm in a survival existence, right? Mm. Like, when we were in the Arctic and our only goal was to cover about 30 miles a day and survive, I didn't feel the need to go out and do something to burn off this energy, right? Right. Um, it's like we need that fight or flight response to kind of take care of a certain side of our psyche. Um, mm. And, you know, spearfishing, living in Bermuda, like, I want that existence again. I want to go back to that. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to have kids? I don't. Um, I never have. I... I thought I had one for a year. Um, I was <laughs> <laughs> turned out to be a puppy. Like, like <laughs> turned out to not be what? mine. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, that's why. Wow. That's why I don't shoot weddings anymore, bridesmaids. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I went through the whole process, and um, you know, I didn't want kids before that happened as well. I've been accused of that being the reason I don't want kids. But mm. um, and you know what? I was great father in the time frame that I thought I had the kid. I, uh, I loved the kid. I spent a lot of my time just, I made all of my decisions about how can I set this child up for a good life instead of what can I do to serve myself? Um, and you know, it was, it was a good experience, but it's not one that I find necessary for my life. Um, now if at a certain point I have no financial worries and a nice big house and consistency in my career, which is really hard to get as a photographer. Um, then I'm open to it. If my girlfriend says that's something that she needs and that's yeah. a conversation we've had a lot, but, um, the problem is, is there's time limits on this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I, I sort of have the same, I have always had the same feeling you're describing where it's like, I'm not opposed to it uh, as an experience. I think it would be fascinating. Um, and I'd learn a lot that I don't know now. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, all those changes in the way you look at life that people talk about. Um, but yeah, I've never been willing to 
totally changed the way I live and my relationship to money and to risk mm -hmm. and to spontaneity in order to plug into some like and part of it also is my my family moved a lot when I was a kid mm -hmm. and I didn't like that. It was painful. Um, right, eventually yeah. I got That's used hard to it. On a kid. Yeah. Yeah. Like you lose all your friends when you're 12, 13, 14, that, mm -hmm. you know, that's the end of the world. That really sucks. Um, and I wouldn't want to do that to kids if I could help it. Um, but on the other hand, I've never lived anywhere where I've felt like, okay, I'm going to stay here for 30 years, you know? Like, right. Yeah. Who the hell knows? See, um, my girlfriend says, well, you know, look at this family. They're on a sailboat. And they're raising their two kids and they're homeschooling them and they're still doing all the same adventures. And, and I'm thinking, okay, that's a $2 million sailboat. And I don't think <laughs> the same problems that some of us might have. Um, Satellite phones. Yeah. Yeah. But then what happens if that kid's dream is to play on the football team? Right. You know, like who am I to tell that kid that he can't have his desires for life because no, no, we're going to, we're going to live the life I want. You know, and that's where I see it as um, you don't you don't give up on who you are, but you have to let go of a lot of it. Yeah. You ever see a film called Surfwise? No. It's a fascinating film. It's it's describes what you're just talking about. It's this guy who um, was a I think he was a medical doctor. He was in the Navy based in Hawaii in like the 40s. And he was a surfer. And um, then he, he didn't get some promotion he wanted or something went wrong. And he was like, fuck it. He quit, took his surfboard, and he went to Israel. So this is like, you know, 1952 or something. And he's in Israel and he's surfing. And he's like the first person who's ever surfed in Israel. And so all these newspapers came out and like photographed him, you know, surfing. And he yeah. started teaching people how to surf. And then he went into the desert because he wanted to do like what Jesus did, you know, whatever right. it was, 90 days and 90, 80 days. I don't remember how many days it was. Um, and he went in the desert and he had this vision of meeting a Latina girl and having eight kids with her. <laughs> and then he... And then he came back to California and he went, he was in this Mexican restaurant and he sees this Mexican uh, girl, like, you know, 18 years old, having, uh, eating with her family. And he walks over to her and he says, you and I are going to be married and you're going to have eight children <laughs> of mine. <laughs> Just and out did, of nowhere. Did it happen? <laughs> yes, it happened. <laughs> And so I don't know, he if I was the father in that scenario. I think I'd be chasing him out of the restaurant. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, anyway, he uh, he decides that he's going to raise the children surfing, no school, mm -hmm. and they're living in a like a twenty-one foot camper, all yeah. eleven or ten of them, right? Yeah. It's an amazing film because it's very it's it's really interesting. The first half is like holy shit, this guy's amazing, really yeah. cool dude, incredible, and he's you know living the way he wants to live. And but then you start to see, you know, how the kids suffer for that, you know, mm -hmm. suffer because they're stuck into his vision of what the right. best kind of life is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, surf yeah, I, I think that there's certain risks that shouldn't be taken when you have somebody relying on you, 
you know, and this isn't just relying on you in the sense of like an employee. This is somebody whose life depends on you. And is it really worth it to go out and risk your life, even if you don't think you're risking your life, but to do something dangerous? Yeah. When you got kids to feed. <laughs> well, see, that's why I asked you about having kids, because I was if, if you had said yes, I was going to ask you how that would change your approach to mm -hmm. these sorts of activities. Right. Like mm -hmm. once you have a kid, are you still cave diving? Are you still right. paragliding? You know, mm -hmm. it's a. You know, because what you said about your at a certain point, your life belongs to you. I agree with that. Um, but I also agree with the second part of what you said, where <laughs> it also belongs to people who love you. Right. And especially, uh, you know, people who are very vulnerable, like little kids, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. I mean, so, I think that if you have a child, your life, at least 50 percent belongs to that child, um, at least maybe even more than that. Um, I mean, just to give you an example, you know, when I thought that this girl was pregnant with my child, I moved from the mountains in Colorado to a downtown loft in Denver that was close to a good school. I stopped shooting big adventure stuff and started shooting studio photography and fashion photography, stuff I could do around the city. Um, I gained 30 pounds. I started being extremely bored with life and going to the bar at night, every night. Um, it took me years to get back to who I was before. It took me a long, especially long time to be willing to put myself in a scenario that could make me afraid. Um, I lost that over the course of the time frame that I thought I had a kid. I completely lost it. I was not able to take risks. Um, mm. So that's... To me, like that's kind of what you have to do when you have a kid. You have to be able – your life is now about preparing them for their life. Um, and I get that I'm wrong in a lot of ways and that this is a perspective. Um, but that's how I see it, and that's how I respond to it. And I'm not ready how for do, Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, uh, you know, at 58, I don't think it's going to happen for me. <laughs> <laughs> I, although i i know a guy who had a kid at like you know 72 it's like yeah. all right i, I guess yeah. um uh if i can ask and i don't mean to I, I wouldn't ask this except that you raised the the issue yourself but how did that end like did she um, know that it wasn't your kid or how did that uh so <laughs> the story is a lot better and longer than what I've said. I mean, um, and maybe you'd say worse. So I met this girl at a wedding that I was shooting. We went out to a bar afterwards. I was under the impression she was in her twenties. She was 17. I was 21. Um, she got pregnant. I, I was at the time excommunicated from my family for leaving the religion. So I finally took my parents aside and sat them down and said, I have something really important to tell you. So you're going to have to talk to me. Um, by the way, you're going to be grandparents. So my parents, it actually, it helped me get my family back. Um, and then in that moment, she texted me and said, Oh, by the way, I'm 17. Literally while I had my parents sat down to tell them this, she admits she's not actually 21. She's 17. Um, and then she kept making comments about her stepfather being a creep. 
and about her brother being a creep. And then her younger sister said some things about her stepfather being a pervert. And then finally, it was her, I think, eight-year-old younger brother said something about her and her stepfather and her stepfather taking advantage of her. Um, so I ended up getting a, blood t a DNA test, and it was not my child. I didn't confirm that it was the stepfather's, but the stepfather and her mother ended up adopting the child. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, in one sense, I felt really bad. Like, part of me was like, I need to help take care of this person i need to help get them out of the situation but the other part of me was like this isn't my doing this isn't my thing i can't insert myself yeah. into this child's life and um act like i have some right to be there you know um, yeah were you living with the mother and the child during that year no no oh, I, okay the, the woman the mother and i never had a real relationship we were together quote unquote for about a week and right um yeah i i quickly figured out that she was not somebody i wanted to be with my parents wanted us to get married and be the you know nice perfect family because we'd made this mistake we needed to be together and own up to our mistakes but i figured i'd rather raise the kid in an environment with at least one happy parent separate rather than unhappy parents together <laughs> yeah um, yeah yeah i mean i i don't know if i handled the situation the best i was a child you know i was 21 um, yeah at the time i thought i was an adult <laughs> but looking back i'm like man i don't know how i could handle that same scenario now like you were in that you were in that intermediate danger zone, right? Where yeah. you thought oh, you knew I enough. Well, I was also <laughs> raised in a cult that told me, you know, no sex before marriage. Didn't really educate us on the right way to go about it if you did do it. You know, I remember the girl telling me she was on birth control and I believed her. And, you know, I, I kind of went into it with uh, a very wrong perspective on how sex and love and all of that actually works in the real world. My parents so, were great examples. They were beautifully in love until my dad passed away. Um, they were such a great example that it's almost a disservice because they didn't show me what most of the real world is like. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I wonder what it's like for you having been raised you know you've referred to it as a cult a couple of times um you know and then being estranged from your family like have you you've had to educate yourself in a way i guess uh, spiritually yeah. at least um i've done a lot of reading you know when i left the religion it wasn't because i wanted to go out and have sex and do drugs it was because i had tr translated the bible from greek to English, read it, how, you know, what it actually says versus what I'm told it says. Mm. I finally realized that, you know, the people, we all have these people we look up to and trust. Well, I finally realized that a lot of them didn't know what they were talking about either. Um, most of my youth was spent thinking that one day this will all make sense. And to be fair and referring to it as a cult, I view all religion 
as a cult. It's just some of them have more members than others. But if you were to make that a group of 10 people believing it, it would be a cult. Like, wow, how can they believe this stuff? That's me. That's my perspective. Um, I understand that religion is a big part of people's lives and that a lot of them believe that morality is attached to religion. I believe that they're totally separate and religion has just kind of capitalized on our base moral instincts. Mm. Um, the one thing that I can really say that that process did for me was it gave me the ability to understand that I can believe something wholeheartedly and be completely wrong. So, <laughs> yeah. so you know, I, I will definitely argue my point. I won't make it easy for you, but if I'm wrong, I'm willing to accept that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I, I agree. I think that's uh, sort of the first basic requirement of being an adult is that, that kind of humility and, Joseph Campbell, I, I imagine you probably read some of his stuff, The Power mm -hmm. of Myth. He yep. describes that as detribalization, right? That realizing we are in a tribe and that tribe has a certain way of looking at the world and a certain way of living. And, you know, that's, I mean, I guess probably speaking for both of us, that's why travel is so yeah. fascinating. Yeah. To, to get break, out of that. Break out of that and see other tribes and see... You know, one of the most powerful things for me was when I was first becoming a photographer and I was shooting weddings, going to weddings that were organized by people of different religions and seeing them say the exact same things about being the chosen people and, you know, God's blessing this and like, wow, they're all the same, you know. Yeah. Um, and the the thing that really stood out to me was there wasn't a single one of them that was an inclusive organization. They didn't get their pride from who they included. They got their pride from being different, from excluding mm. other people by saying, right. we're different because we this and they don't. Right. And I think, you know, being part of the cool kids in school was the same thing. It wasn't what you liked to be a part of. It was what you were too cool for. Right. right. It's who you didn't have in your group that made your group cool. Yeah. Um, and I wonder what the human nature is that makes that happen. But I, I definitely try to live my life in a very different way now. I, I love being friends with the weirdos and the, the people that are different than me and have a different perspective. And I think that we can all really learn from those differences. And, you know, I try to, I try to have a little bit more of that mentality in my life now too. So given the fact that your life is so, um, you know, getting back to what I said at the beginning, that you're basically living the dream, right? You're living the the dream of many young men, uh, living this life of adventure, having all these extreme experiences, um, you know, being on a TV show, hosting the TV show, no less. Um, how are you going to get old? Oh, man. <laughs> I, I honestly think about that more often than I want to admit. I don't know. <laughs> um, Are you going to be able to let go of some of the physical things, uh, you know, gracefully and transfer them in? Because you're obviously a very smart guy as well. It's not like you, you know, are reliant on your body 100 percent, right? I mean, I, I hope I hope I can let that stuff go. 
my goal is to kind of gather these experiences and then become a writer or an author. Um, I've done writing for magazines and stuff like that in the past, but never anything on the scale of a book. But with my photography and expeditions, I think that would make a great series of books. Um, but in regards to actually like, how will I feel getting old, you know, letting go of this stuff? That's one of the reasons I took up paragliding as the, in the first place was I thought it was hammocks in the sky. I thought it was just like <laughs> this super casual float around in the air thing. Yeah. And honestly, it can be in the right scenario. Um, I've seen people in their 80s paragliding. Um, I've seen people in their 60s learning, you know. So I do think that it's a sport I can do for the rest of my life. I'll just have to do it very differently. Mm. But even looking back at snowboarding, the reason I don't really enjoy snowboarding anymore is because I, I don't really have fun unless I'm at a certain limit. You know, I don't get a sense of pride from what I'm doing unless I'm doing something that is elite level and scares me. And like, I, I really feel like I accomplished something at the end of the day. I don't have fun just going out and cruising down the hill, but paragliding I do because I'm a beginner. So par you, you, you conflated two words there, pride and fun. That was interesting. Mm -hmm. You know, you said you don't have a sense of pride unless you're at an elite level. I don't have fun if I just go cruise down the hill. Are they the same? For me with snowboarding, they were. And I think that's one of the reasons I quit. Uh, because you were yeah. that good to just go do it casually is, is a letdown. Yeah. And to, to be able to not be able to have fun if I'm not proud, like that kind of, it's a bummer. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that's know? what I was getting at. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Like you that's a trap, you know, that yeah. you set for yourself there. Yeah. You know, to be, to look out and see somebody else do something cool and not feel like, oh, that was cool. Good for them. But to feel like, oh, now I got to do something better. Hmm. Like that. I just, I stopped having fun. And yeah, the real fun in these sports comes from being a beginner, from learning something new every day and feeling pride just on having done it you know yeah um that's where the real fun comes from yeah yeah i agree fun totally separate from any sense of pride or accomplishment or mm -hmm. ex do you, excellence do you think kyle tierman has more fun surfing mavericks than a beginner has learning at waikiki you know <laughs> yeah no i I actually think Kyle Tierman has the most fun when yeah, he's teaching someone else how to surf. Yeah. That's that's when I see him get the most excited. Like when he was teaching Neil Strauss how to surf mm -hmm. and he was staying in my van in the driveway. He'd come home every day like, dude, it's so great to watch someone learn to do this. It's so yeah. you know, he asks all the right questions and he was really getting turned on by that. And you know, they yeah. were surfing like five foot waves or something. It's nothing yeah. for Kyle. But just seeing someone else picking it up and being able yeah. to teach them really excited him. It's getting yeah. to live th that that experience of learning again through the eyes of somebody right. else. Yeah. Right, right. When you don't need to have kids to do that, right? You just share your knowledge with anybody. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right, Ben, listen, I've taken an hour of your time. I really appreciate it. And uh, I hope we can do this again in person sometime so we're not uh, yeah. dealing with weird techno glitches and stuff. 
Hopefully we're allowed to be in person again sometime soon. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean if not, I'll just I'll just bring a phone booth or something and <laughs> isolate myself. <laughs> yeah. It works for um, me. I, I'm, <laughs> all right. Yeah, I'm willing to, to risk you, it. Chris. <laughs> you too, man. Thanks a lot for this. Tell people, I, I know you have a website. It's just benhorton.com, is it? or It's, it's benhorton.biz, B-I-Z. Dot biz. Okay, yep. cool. And and I see people can see your blog there and your photography. And yep, actually, you can find I, pretty much everything from there. I was watching the trailer to um, Extreme China, uh, and I got I lost track of time, and that's why I, I connected kind of late to this. <laughs> you actually were distracting me from you. It was confusing. <laughs> Very that's meta great. experience. All right, brother. Thanks for All doing right. this. I'll talk to you. Soon. Talk to you again soon. All right, bye bye. All right, ladies and gentlemen. I'm outside the Starbucks in Susanville, California, about to upload this episode. Got back from the the campsite where I lost my keys. I went to Walmart to see if they sold metal detectors because I was going to go back there and look for them. But honestly, at this point, man, we looked everywhere for those damn keys. We kicked every clump there was within a 50-foot radius of the van. I think they were taken by an animal. I'm going to blame this one on the animal kingdom. I, I saw some like big voles or something some kind of weird fat squat rodent um rummaging around in the underbrush and there were also lots of crows around there and i remember that crows like shiny things so i'm thinking that my keys are in some animals burrow or nest at this point which bites because now i'm down to one key and i do have a tendency to hide things. I don't I don't have a tendency to lose things, but I have a tendency to hide things and forget where I hid them. I don't know what that says about me, but there you have it. I am about to upload this. So, let me just say that that song was a song that I thought uh kind of combines western and non-western voices. It's a song called Iwoya. It's a duet between Angelique Kijo and Dave Matthews. Uh, the album is Black Ivory Soul. Angelique Kijo has an amazing voice, a lot of good music. Check her out if you're into that kind of thing. All right. Thanks for listening to this. Sorry for the disjointed delivery and the all-over-the-place confusion, but uh, it's an accurate reflection of... The micro and the macro, I guess, these days. I hope you're doing well, and I hope your mask fits. Talk to you soon. Okay, Mom, uh, tell people what they can order from the garage. Okay, in our cottage garage, we have lots and lots of T-shirts. Sex at Dawn, Civilized to Death, Vanthropology, Tangentially Speaking, Paleo Modern, and talking out of my ass <laughs> she didn't like saying that last one then we now have some new things added we've got beer cozies or koozies or whatever they're called oh civilized to death design. they're all civilized That's right. to death. we have stickers and car decals right yes okay there you have it that's julie my mom 
He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you wanna feel. Say what you wanna say. You're gonna die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. When everyone you've ever known is headed for a headstone. Doesn't ask for much. A little music and a soft touch. Why don't you let it out to play? Your heart is in a birdcage, singing in your chest. You wanna shut it up, but give it a rest. You're gonna die one day. Why do we waste our time thinking about a reputation? Running from a confrontation, wondering what we ought to say. <laughs> When everyone we've ever known is headed for a headstone, I don't wanna give the end away. We're gonna die one day. We're gonna die one day. We're gonna die one day. So baby, what's a big deal? If you wanna be free, say what you wanna feel. Spend the night with me. I'm gonna take you up in my arms, and if we must go down, we'll go singing to the smoke alarms. We'll dance into the ground.